I'm going to bring on Camila Escalante now. Uh, Camila, how you doing? Hello? Oh, I can't hear you right now. I'm getting a nice thing chats in the comments. Is is your is your is your microphone? Try clicking settings beneath and someone in the chat do tell me if you can hear her and it's a problem on my side. Um can you hear me now? Oh, yes. Yes. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Nice to see I you, well. Andrew. Oh, nice to Good see you. Good evening over Camilla. there. Oh, yeah, it is. It's bloody it's late here. Where are you calling us from today? I'm in La Paz, uh, which is the major city, but not the capital. Um, you know, the government, uh, the, the head of the government center and buildings uh, here in La Paz, Bolivia. And this is where my news outlet, Casachi News, is based. I'm not oh, Bolivian cool. myself, but this is where I do the bulk of my reporting most of the time. How's the air up there? It's very, it's high up, it's notoriously high up. It's Argentinian football team with Messi <laughs> lost, was it 6-0 or something like that to Bolivia one time? Yeah, but, um, you know, like a lot of the footballers from Bolivia are actually from lower lands at sea level oh. from other parts of the country. So while it, it kind of works against everyone, both the Bolivian footballers and the international ones, um, but that is the case here in La Paz. Um, and this region is around 3,500 uh, meters above sea level up to 4,000, which is quite high. And it is difficult to do physical activity. Bloody hell. I'm out of breath just thinking about it. Tell us a bit about your background and your news agency and everything. Yeah, well, um, I have been reporting on the ground in Latin America for about five, six years. I'm Latin American myself. My parents are from Central America, but I've been living in, for the most part, uh, here in South America, around South America. But I was formerly with Telesur, which is how a lot of people came to know me. And through Telesur, I was able to uh, be based in Quito, Ecuador, in Caracas, Venezuela, and Havana, Cuba. And now, uh, during the coup that took place here in Bolivia in 2019, I came to report on the ground, doing some reports for the U.S. alternative outlet, Min Press News, as well as for Telesur, and kind of my own reporting as well. And based on that, we decided to launch a whole new outlet because we thought that there wasn't the platform we needed to be able to do the reported that need, the reporting that needed to be done at that time. Oh, that's cool. And so we're going to be talking today about all different things in Latin America, which is your specialty, of course. Uh, starting with, I suppose, the colossal coup failures in Venezuela, including mercenary and terror plots. So tell me a bit about that. Yeah, I think, um, you know, this is just very much all woven into what, what's happening right now in the world with the conflict that the United States, um, as well as its allies, uh, both in Europe and around our region here in Latin America, as far as the right wing governments who've always sort of tagged along with the United States, have come, have come crawling back to Venezuela in search for oil, um, as well as other things, of course. But... In Venezuela, we have the same Bolivarian government led by President Nicolas Maduro as we've had all these years, um, including during the height of the attacks against Venezuela's government, the coup plotting, um, and all of the sort of terrorist attacks and everything else that took place largely since 2017. And yet now, as you've seen in the headlines, you know, Washington has been sending official delegations and have been in permanent talks with the Bolivarian government in Caracas 
since March of this year, uh, just you know, a month after the the conflict began overseas, and they're speaking with you know President Maduro and his government in search of oil, and they're doing so, you know, <clears throat> kind of uh, negotiating around some of the people who they say are uh, were arbitrarily or wrongfully detained in Venezuela, who are U.S. citizens. And of course, there's also Alex Saab, who is a Venezuelan diplomat who is being held hostage in the United States, having committed no crime. Uh, the crime that they, of course, uh, picked him up on was going overseas to Iran and trying to find ways to overcome the U.S. imposed sanctions, which started under President Barack Obama, and to try to bring food and vital necessities to Venezuela. So they're kind of using all these different things and going back and forth. But of course, we've seen a slowdown in the international you know, media information campaign against Venezuela because it's no longer useful for the U.S. government to be going after Venezuela every single day in the headlines through the New York Times and the Washington Post and everything else because they're trying to negotiate them with them currently because they have no other way to get oil. Um, you know, this is the United States has been plotting these coups against Venezuela since at least 2017 or 2014. Uh, some people might say since uh, Commander Hugo Chavez passed away and Nicolas Maduro took power. And, you know, they wanted to make the Venezuelan or Venezuela in general and its government subservient and a slave to Washington, as are many of the countries in our region. And the Venezuelan people, through their own you know, struggle, have overcome these sanctions that were imposed by Obama and that were ramped up by the Trump administration. And they've been able to lower uh, the you know, rate of hyperinflation that we were seeing. They've been able to get some of the vital necessities back in their country. They've overcome you know, the waves of COVID that struck the region and they're getting back on their feet economically. Uh, but during this time, like you said, <clears throat> there have been a lot of coup attempts. Um, and you know, the main one that caused a storm was in January 2019 when they tried to install Juan Guaido. And Juan Guaido is a very uh, was a member of the National Assembly. He was elected to the National Assembly in 2015, but he was not known by a lot of Venezuelans, and he was not even a prominent figure of the opposition. Now today, people don't even, uh, in the United States, in Washington, don't even remember who Juan Guaido is. Recently, Nancy Pelosi was asked about uh, the recognition of Juan Guaido and why Guaido was not uh, invited to the Summit of the Americas that took place in Los Angeles, which was this Organization of American States and Biden organized summit, where they excluded, of course, Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua. And Nancy Pelosi didn't even remember Juan Guaido's name. So, you know, that was a failed coup attempt. But in that same year, and in the following year, we saw numerous other attempts where they tried to, you know, bust into the country with fake humanitarian aid, uh, you know, wage these sorts of uh, wars and, you know, escalate things um, from Colombia, mercenary attacks. That was the April 30th planned attack, attack. And that is something that Juan, or sorry, that John Bolton has now admitted more than once, including in his book, having knowledge of these planned attacks against Venezuela, where they tried to use Colombian and US mercenaries to invade uh, Venezuelan territory and uh, 
assassinate not only the president, his wife, but other high-ranking members of the government in order to install Juan Guaido once again. And it's been a complete failure. Would you would you suggest um, that a lot of the things we've heard out of the news of Nicolas Maduro, who, who a lot of us think of as an autocrat or a dictator, are, are smear campaigns? Yeah, it absolutely is a smear campaign. I mean, these are these sorts of headlines or for the most part, have been parroting the lines that we've heard year after year from the State Department. You know, whether it's um, a columnist that writes something for one of the major traditional newspapers in the United States or in Britain, uh, you know, they have been using the exact same wording that we have heard from both the CIA and the State Department and the White House. It's not in any way a different take. And those are takes from the exterior. They're being imposed from the countries that believe themselves to be democracies um, and, you know, believe themselves to be the leaders in human rights around the world. But by no means are those the takes of actual Venezuelans living in Venezuela who are, you know, involved in, you know, the different actual social sectors of the country and not just, you know, rich people with a platform who are speaking on behalf of their nonprofit and not actually on behalf of any real communities there. So, you know, this has been a propaganda war. And I think it's very clear now. It's clear now in the fact that, you know, the opposition has had so many different uh, factions that they haven't been able to come together uh, to really oppose the PSU, which is the United Socialist Party of Venezuela. Um, electorally, they refuse to run any sort of um, internal primaries. They refuse to, to go to elections, whereas mm -hmm. the PSUV and President Nicolas Maduro's government continue to hold elections wherein their party and their candidates and leaders and figures participate in every single one, whether they be local, regional, uh, and, and you know, national elections. So it really says a lot that you know, the opposition that's the loudest that we hear in the mainstream media and whose faces we see largely live in Bogota, in Madrid, and in Washington and Miami. Mm. But I, I gather that, and I'm just playing devil's advocate here, you know, six million Venezuelans have had to flee the country. Uh, 9,000 people were subject to extrajudicial killings. It's, and, you know, obviously the hyperinflation and stuff hasn't been good the last few, few years. So there's got to be, I mean, it, 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 some of that stuff is true, isn't it, about Maduro? None of that stuff is true. And it's absolutely, I mean, the premise of that question is absolutely wrong. The framing is wrong. And those are not numbers that are accepted by anyone except the Venezuelan far right and the organization of American states led by Luis Almagro, um, especially that number um, of extrajudicial killings. I mean, that's absolutely um, unheard of. That is an uh, absolutely bizarre uh, figure to put out there. And I, I know the sort of sorts of individuals who are behind those um <clears throat> those figures they live in europe uh they are from the venezuelan far-right sectors and they've never they have not been in venezuela in like the last 10 years and they have kind of integrated themselves in like european society but they receive a lot of money this is a career that they have they have literally built a career um off of this sort of like transnational criminal organization that they're a part of we have to remember that since you know well, probably since the beginning of Chavismo and the Bolivarian Revolution, when Hugo Chavez came to power, there have been a lot of 
you know, sectors on the right, which is a, a large spectrum of people in different political parties who opposed that government. But over time, it became more and more of a business model that a lot of different people have adopted. And some of these people, you know, had some at one time or another credibility among the right wing and right wing voters within Venezuela. A lot of them, you know, became international figures. They started talking about different issues, um, you know, things that they opposed in terms of the Bolivarian government's policies internally. But then, you know, more and more money became available through the State Department and the U.S. agencies, as well as agencies uh, of the European governments that, you know, support mm -hmm. this this wing of of the of the right as well. And this is what we're seeing right now. We're seeing a lot of uh, people within Venezuela and even in Miami and Washington from the right wing who were at one point or another perhaps aligned with Juan Guaido demanding accountability for, you know, for where all of this money and financing has gone. They raised at least uh, millions of dollars towards, you know, democracy and human rights promotion and helping people within of Venezuela, you know, get vital necessities, but the people within Venezuela have not gotten any of that assistance that was supposedly being, you know, handed down from these agencies to the Guaido people. So it does look like it's a great uh, corruption scheme, uh, first of all. And second of all, you know, during, uh, since, you know, the Lima group was installed, which was a pro-coup organization, um, with all the right-wing governments uh, represented within our region and the United States and Canada as well, um, you know, they started stealing um, and withholding some of the assets of the Venezuelan state in different countries, including some of their, um, some of their uh, you know, companies having to do with oil and even banking. And that money has been hijacked as well. And, you know, for what use is it being used to funnel uh, is it being used to potentially fund a future um, electoral campaign of the right wing? Is it being used to help um, on humanitarian grounds? I mean, we don't know. That money is missing, and it has been missing for years now. Hmm. I've got a question uh, from Caro in this on the side, just saying, you know, how do you explain Venezuelans fleeing to other countries? And you know, I was talking, about, you know, the millions. I I couldn't tell you how many it is. I mean, I lived in Argentina, where not a day went past I didn't meet somebody who was a doctor or a lawyer or something in Venezuela who was now working as you know maybe a cleaner or a taxi driver in in Argentina, and they they told horror stories about what's going on in Venezuela. So what about those people? Yeah, things got extremely difficult economically due to the U.S. imposed sanctions on Venezuela, particularly in 2016, 2017, and 2018 when I lived there. Um, it was very difficult to find very vital, regular necessities such as hygiene products uh, would be like one of the biggest things. Obviously, if you wanted to do something like make cupcakes or a cake for your sister's birthday party, you wouldn't be able to find some of the very basic ingredients like Betty Crocker mix or whatever it is, um, frosting things and stuff like that to be able to even like host a party. I mean, it was very, very challenging. And, um, you know, there was that. There was also the fact that uh, there was hyperinflation. So beyond items being missing off the shelves, the things that were there were very expensive, such as Coca-Cola or Pepsi products you would pay, you know, just uh, absurd amounts for just really basic things. And on top of that, you know, the, the wages were not um, keeping up with inflation. And so a lot of people, you know, who have a lot of 
uh, you know, skills and, um, uh, and credentials went to the exterior in those initial years uh, to seek to seek work as, you know, doctors or dentists or whatever else. And as things became harder, um, some some other, you know, Venezuelans, you know, younger people, young men also went to the exterior to neighboring countries uh, for the most part. Obviously, a lot of people tried to go to the United States, but also places like Colombia, Brazil, and as you said, Argentina. Um, a lot of those people now are going back. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that, but obviously the economic recovery um, and the fact that they're largely adopting the use of the dollar now, and a lot of people, even throughout this period, have been earning salaries in dollars and euros to be able to just survive in Venezuela. For people who weren't able to get these sorts of professional or private sector jobs where they got paid in, in euros or uh, dollars, it was very difficult to live there. And uh, nobody, um, nobody would deny that, but it is the result of this, you know, heightened sanction war that sanctioned every bit of economic and social and cultural life of Venezuela. Um, I think, you know, people have learned a little bit more about what, uh, what the result of these sanctions are, but they have never in any way been targeted against what, you know, the U.S. State Department officials would say, target these senior officials of the Maduro government. It's on the contrary, the people who have always been most affected by these sanctions that make it difficult to buy medicine and basic foods um, and import them from the country have been the poorest sectors of the working class. Well, fair enough. Um, I want to move on to Havana syndrome, which is really, really interesting, I, th I think. I mean, it's all interesting stuff. Uh, but tell us a bit about what Havana syndrome is. I mean, some Cuban spies and stuff. I'm really fascinated by this. <clears throat> yeah, it became known as the Havana syndrome because the first cases that were reported um, were reported by these CIA functionaries that were stationed in the Havana U.S. Embassy um, in 2016. So it's now been six years. Um, since then, uh, other U.S. functionaries of Department of Homeland Security, of, uh, you know, the, what they say is the, uh, you know, other State Department um, functionaries stationed in other countries, such as India, have also reported that something took place, some sort of mysterious syndrome, inexplicable to them. Some of them reported, um, you know, problems with hearing, and then, you know, afterwards, problems with their vision and headaches and dizziness. Um, and most notably, I would say, is that a lot of the people who reported these symptoms were in the United States, um, in Washington, hmm. where they're, you know, where they're stationed. They're not actually part of the, the foreign teams. And, uh, but because it was like so well known and so promoted actually by John Bolton, that it had to do with Cuba, it became known as the Havana Syndrome. Since then, they also, you know, started blaming uh, Russia and China for um, for what they said were, you know, sonic attacks. They said it was, you know, a high-powered microwave weapon that could have been used. Um, and these are sort of claims that were made by sort of, you know, experts linked to uh, the CIA. And what, you know, what they were trying to make a case for was to say that. Um, you know, a foreign power that has access to this technology, which they say is only accessible to the United States, Russia, and China, um, you know, uh, 
came and uh, you know attacked these different um, these different functionaries of the U.S. government, mostly intelligence and foreign service agents, uh, during this period. But it's been six years, and in those six years, you know, after the initial um, symptoms or whatever incidents, or people said they felt dizzy and they, you know, either stumbled or they were having convulsions in their bed, all sorts of different things were reported by different people. Um, there have been different investigations, of course, including internally by the United States, um, and it has come up with very little. One of the investigations was conducted a few years ago by some researchers in Quebec and Canada, and they attributed a lot of the initial cases that they had looked at um, to uh, pesticides, the, the overuse of pesticides at the embassy in Havana, saying that what the, you know, the symptoms and the different things that the people had complained about when they went back to their doctors in the United States, uh, you know, kind of fit that description of, you know, oh, you know, use, overuse over time of strong pesticides, which is something that, you know, we do all around Central America and the Caribbean is uh, spray down the different facilities in people's homes because of the different uh, mosquito-borne illnesses. Then a very um, thorough um, expert-conducted investigation took place in Cuba uh, by just a, a large range of, of scientists there that also said that they couldn't conclude uh, that it was any you know, systemic deliberate attack um, and, you know, that was widely published because it was years after the fact um, and nothing was found. And of course, earlier this year, as the CIA director, William Burns, has now said, um, you know, they re the, the U.S. released uh, the findings or the preliminary findings of their investigation, which said that they could not actually tie um, what had taken place to, um, let's see what it says, that they couldn't... Uh, you know, that they couldn't pin this on a foreign player or the Russians, or that it is the result of a sustained campaign on the scale of what has been reported to U.S. personnel to harm them with a weapon or some sort of external advice device. And what they have said is that in the majority of the incidents that they've studied of these people who are supposedly victims, that they could find reasonable alternative explanations for what took place, whether it be previous sports injuries for people who were young athletes at one time, whether it is the use of pesticides or some other explanation, but they can't pin it on a foreign actor. And so, um, you know, I think it does seem like um, in a lot of the cases that there are people who were experiencing some sort of headache or dizziness, but um, whether or not they establish the cause uh, they'll be getting paid a hundred to two hundred thousand U.S. dollars in compensation, approved wow. by the Congress from the Biden administration. So that suggests that it's more than just social contagion. It suggests that the U.S. is in some way liable. Well, I don't think that they're determined to uh, to find a to find an explanation, really. And I think that they're probably just going to end. Uh, you know, we're going to stop hearing about it now that the people are going to be paid. Um, they're just going to, it's just going to go away as it is. It has fallen from the headlines. It was made into a CBS News special on 60 Minutes, uh, mm -hmm. where they interviewed some of the supposed victims. 
One of the people is 30, 36 years old. He, he said he was stationed in Havana. And I believe he was a CIA agent, but he doesn't, he's not named. They show his face and everything, but they don't say who he is. He, they say they cannot reveal uh, what agency he worked for. And he said that he essentially at the age of 36 was forced into retirement because of the, because of what he had experienced there. But I mean, at this point, it's the, they have reported this happening in so many different countries. And additionally, Canadian diplomats began to make complaints as well. Um, so I think it's very bizarre uh, that if, you know, if they were trying to pin it on Cuba at one point or another, then, you know, the story kind of uh, just got out of control because you had other people in the Trump administration, because, of course, remember the start under Trump, who were trying to pin it on China and then Russia um, and then other countries and, and just trying to develop more conspiracies about this to the point where I think nobody, uh, neither internally in the U.S., can take it seriously and of course, it's been the story has been rejected internationally. Right. Interesting. We've got about four minutes, three, four minutes left. Give me a little bit about like what what is the example of American aggression that that annoys you the most right now? Well, what annoys me the most right now, I would say, is that, you know, we obviously have a government in the United States now that wants to put all of this emphasis on climate change on the rights of disabled people, um, on gender, and on, you know, inequity and, uh, you know, equality and promoting, um, you know, promoting racial equality and all these different things. And it's really, um, you know, it, it's really just bizarre how they, how, how this country that, for example, has just recently um, attacked women on our right to choose whether or not, you know, to get an abortion in the United States, will be going after countries such as Cuba, where people have had access to abortions for several decades. And that's, some, that's a right that will never be rescinded. It's never going to be taken away. And it's never going to come under attack in, in Cuba. And so, you know, it, it continues to, you know, promote itself as the number one promoter and the number one, um, you know, ideal example for the world of democracy and human rights, where there's a lot of, you know, backwardsness in the U.S. in terms of their national politics, but also just generally, um, you know, this is a country where a large part of one of its largest, most populous states is on fire right now and has, is dealing with a lot of issues of climate change but also where people are just getting shot up at malls and at celebrations and at schools. And they have the gall to go to other countries and tell us how to govern our countries and run our countries. Um, it's absolutely absurd when you look at all of the different problems the U.S. has, specifically around violence. Um, there's just a high degree of violent crime in the United States that frankly doesn't exist in the places that I've lived in Latin America, particularly here in Bolivia, in Ecuador. Um, I've never experienced the sort of catcalling um, and gender-based discrimination here in Latin America as I did growing up in the United States. Interesting. Interesting. Although I've got friends who say the opposite about our, in being in Argentina, but that's a different part of Latin America, of course. Um, but Camila, that is very, very interesting. Thank you so much. Just tell us quickly where you'd like to send people, Twitter, YouTube, that kind of thing. Yeah, we tend to promote our stuff on Twitter at Casachin News. And my own Twitter is uh, Camila Press. 
Um, but you can find our the links to our other stuff from there. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you so much and have a lovely day. Thank you, Camilla.